Hello, everybody. This is Zach Sadded again. I'm your host, Zach Cooley, and I am very happy to be here with uh, actually my middle school principal. Uh, but Sid, you and I have known each other even before I came to Scott Memorial. I can remember you. Uh, my dad was chief deputy, and uh, you I was just very, very little, and you were on the board of supervisors. Uh, yeah. That's exactly right. I remember well. That that was my first acquaintance with you. I've known you, gosh, for years and years. Yes, That's... most of my life, and it's it's a pleasure to have you with me today, Sid. Thank you so much for for being a uh, part of my program. Oh, I appreciate the opportunity. I don't know that I can help, but I'll be glad to try. Uh, but we are here today to talk about uh, something. Our mutual friend, my dear, dear friend, uh, Linda DiOrio, who is a faithful member of the Whitfield Presbyterian Church for many, many years in her family. Uh, she approached me with the task of doing a um, brief history of the Whitfield Presbyterian Church for their 200th anniversary celebration, which is coming up here uh, the first weekend in October. You're going to give a special historical uh, presentation of that, and um, I'm sure that uh, that that is going to be very interesting. Uh, I have combed through what I believe you had a part in, uh, in, in some historical papers that Linda sent me. So I'm just going to basically go through what I have here and, and have you expound on it. Now let's talk a little bit about, before we get into the history, uh, some of the things that people can expect if they come to the celebration. Now this is open to the public, right? And anyone can attend. That's correct. Okay. And uh, things are going to start uh, first on Saturday, October 7th at 5.30 p.m. A light supper will be provided, uh, followed by a performance by Celtic Sessions, who will perform a collection of uh, Scotch-Irish folk songs, which is is a very important part of the heritage, I think, of everyone in Whitfield, but specifically uh, for the members of the Whitfield Presbyterian Church. Can, can you explain why um, the Scotch-Irish uh, what the performance by Celtic Sessions would be so pertinent to uh, the, the church in particular. Sure. Uh, the, the history of the, the Presbyterians in our area, and we have several families still as members and participants of the Whitfield Church as well as the other churches here in the county, that actually their ancestors go back to those first settlers. The settlers in southwest Virginia were largely Scotch-Irish, and those people came to this area in two streams, mostly in the early 1700s. Um, and as you had mentioned to me before, that brings about what was kind of a split in the Presbyterian Church early. Mm -hmm. But uh, the, the, what was called, later became called the old school Presbyterians, or the ones that we in Virginia are more familiar with because of our background with Virginia history. They were settlers that came across the mountain from the Williamsburg and Jamestown area and were very, most of those were very early uh, settlers 
to the Virginia colonies. Right. A little bit later, but not terribly later, still in the, 17, the late 1600s, early 1700s, a lot more Scotch-Irish people, and the Scotch-Irish were really mostly Presbyterian, mm -hmm. they came into the port of Philadelphia and spread in that area around the Pennsylvania valleys and eventually came down the valleys and settled into this area too. So we had Presbyterians coming really in two different groups to the area of Southwest Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, all of this area, which was the wilderness at that time. Right. And the ones that came from the Williamsburg area or what were being called kind of the old school Presbyterians, they were more formal with their worship and especially more formal, I think, with the requirements for education of the ministers. Mm -hmm. Some of that, I, I think, that goes back to their attachment in Williamsburg uh, with uh, the Church of England and the Episcopals there, the ties and actually the legal ties that those people had to the church in Williamsburg. Then the, the Presbyterians that came down the valley were later called the New School Presbyterians. Mm -hmm. They were more informal. They were what we think of as kind of being the frontiersmen of this area, and not as formal with a lot of things, more open to change. And uh, they did not have as many requirements. They all went back to John Calvin and the Presbyterianism of him, the elected form of government, which really... Theologically, Presbyterians are not that much different from a lot of the other Protestant congregations. Right. But yeah. their church government was more different. They really believed in the elected system of representative government. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was the difference. These people believed in that, but the new school was much more informal than the old school. And actually, some of those differences prevailed all the way into the Civil War. Uh, and there were both old school and new school churches in Whistle, although I think there was a lot of intermingling between them. If you look at those early roles, some of the names on them are not the same, but the, the, as my own family, there were actually Crockett's that were part of both congregations. So right. there must have been a good bit of interaction between them. Absolutely. And that split, according to my uh, history, if that's correct, if I copied the notes correctly, happened in 1837. Um, no, formally it did. That, there was actually a split in the Presbyterian Church in the United States. And of course, churches have split for lots of reasons, but that was one split in the Presbyterian Church. And at that, up until then, the congregations had pretty much been the same in this area. And there were churches like we were celebrating the 200th anniversary of our church. So it goes back to 1823. Yep. And then, as you said, in the, in the 1830s, there was actually a formal split for old school and new school. And at that point, there were another, one of the groups split in Whistle and built the other Presbyterian church. And for a while, there were two Presbyterian churches in Whistle. Right. right. And, and coming back to 1823, when the church was founded, it was founded even before Whitfield was Whitfield. It was still known as Evansham. Correct. And it was originally dubbed 
Mount Tabor Presbyterian Church, uh, Reverend James McConnell, uh, aided by Reverend Stephen Baval, formed the church because a man named William Hay had the desire to build a Presbyterian house of worship in Evansham. So, and he sold his land to Charles L. Crockett, which I'm assuming is one of your relatives. And James goes, and, yes, goes back that far. And James E. Brown. Uh, their wives were charter members of the church. So, uh, can you explain, uh, with, do you know anything about Mr. Hayes' desire, why he wanted specifically a Presbyterian church? in with them is was there a specific reason or i think it was and that that was at the point zach where um, not only presbyterians but some of the other denominations were actually formally organizing churches mm-hmm. and these people were uh interested in the number of people in this area who were the old scotch irish presbyterians and making an organization so that they would have their own churches. And and that's how those churches began to come about. Okay, and then we come to, I have something, I found something very interesting. Um, on September 17th, 1841, in a letter dated on that date, uh, church member Ann Dabney Stewart Brown, who is the aunt of fa- uh, legendary um, Civil War uh, figure Jeb Stewart, penned a letter to Reverend Francis McFarlane in hopes of retaining him and bridging the gap between the denominational divisions. She writes, I feel at liberty to invite my old school brethren to come. I'm extremely anxious for you to be one of the ministers. I need to say no more on the subject except that our church is in as cold a state as it can be. What can you expound on that? I have seen and read that letter. Davy Davis and I have talked about that letter a little bit. I'm not sure whether she had great results or not, but I think it goes to just exactly what we were talking about, about the split between the two. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can tell by, by the letter she was... Uh, was not real happy with some of the things that were going on. Uh, I don't honestly know. I know she was asking some of those people to to be more active. I don't know whether she was successful with that or not. Uh, At that time, the churches did pretty much remain the same. It was a little bit later that they split, and uh, one church was built up on Main Street, actually in the area there where the old Greyhound bus station is. Right. Uh, is where one of the two churches were built, and the other one was down in the uh, area close to where the current Presbyterian church is. The first Presbyterian church, we think, was kind of in the area where 3rd and Franklin Street is, but there were no deeds uh, registered or anything about it. And the first formal Presbyterian church was there close to where the current church is, maybe where the Barnett's funeral home lot is, somewhere in that area. That okay. church was later taken down, and the foundation for the church that stands there now was built. The uh, old school people built the church up on uh, 
Main Street, as I said, where the Greyhound bus station is, mm. that church was active really until the Civil War, and I think the Civil War had a big effect on the Presbyterian Church. That's, that's part of the history I'd like to know more about, and I don't know where to find it. But uh, in, in 1864, the congregations really came back together. Uh, those were the dark days for the South of the Civil War, mm. and the church, the congregations came back together. I think in about August of 1864, and came to the new church, the church's on Church Street, which was dedicated in 1863, which was New School. So the actually the old school Presbyterian church was closed at that time, and a lot of people talk about that church was burned by the last grade uh, Union soldiers whistle in December of 1864. Some people say that that church was closed or stopped operating because of the being burned and raped. But I think most of the histories tell you that the congregations actually combined about August of 1864, and that church on Main Street was vacant. And probably because it was vacant, the Confederacy was storing supplies in it, and because of those supplies, that's why the Union forces burned it at that time. Right. After that, the, the churches, the two congregations came back together. And since then, I really have not found much history that says there were differences as far as the old school and new school go. There have been other differences, but that was not been one of them. <laughs> right. And we must acknowledge here that it was around the time that we are talking about um, the Crockett's Cove Presbyterian Church was built in 1858, um, and that is the site of the famous Civil War Battle of Cove Mountain in July of 1864. Um, and as you said, in August 1858, the New School Presbyterians demolished the building on Church Street by the order of the Union Army, and the cornerstone for the new church was laid a 30, a 30 by 50 for a 30 by 50 building and present was a member of the Masons who would go on to be very famous. That was the eventual General William Terry. So, right. General Terry was one of the Masons and he actually spoke at that dedication in 1858. Of course, no one knew at that time what was going to happen just a few couple of years down the road. And, uh, after Stonewall Jackson was killed at Chancellorsville, General Terry actually later became commander of what they called the Stonewall Brigade or Stonewall Jackson's Army. And he was the last commander, followed it with Liddy to the end of the war. Uh, he was much more famous because of his actions close to the end of the Civil War than he was at the time he spoke at the laying of the cornerstone for the new church. And that's when construction began on the current church building we have, the beautiful old church building we have. A lot of people don't realize that it is that old, that it predates the Civil War. Right. Uh, but the stone foundation was laid, and then early on, services were actually held in the basement, the part where you can still see the, the stone foundation of the church. And the church itself, a lot of it was constructed during the war, probably with slave labor during the war. Wow. And it was, and it was uh, dedicated in uh, 
September of 1863, only about eight weeks after the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, was when the church actually dedicated and services began to be held there. And then, as, as we talked about before, uh, another year went by. Those were dark days for the South and the Civil War. And uh, the two churches combined and came back. And since that time, have met at the current church there on Church Street in Whistle. I've always thought, Zach, that, as I said, one of the things I'd like to know a lot more about is that Civil War history. Um, I'm sure you saw the East End Cemetery, land, the first land for it, was purchased by the Presbyterian Church and the Episcopal Church, and I believe that was in 1862. Mm -hmm. And if you look especially at some of Mary Kegley's records of young men that served during the war, uh, you find that a lot of them came, were, came, ended up and were buried in East End Cemetery, casualties of the war. And it, it really makes you stop and think that not only the local community, but the Presbyterian Church, the people of Wythe County, really did pay a, a, a very great price for the Southern cause during the Civil War. Uh, several several people she lists that were casualties in the war are buried in East End Cemetery. And, there, and what, or what maybe some people don't know is things like there were a couple of um, what is considered to the whole of Civil War as pretty minor skirmishes, but 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 they they actually are pretty significant in the battle of the like the Battle of Cove Mountain and Toland's Raid and the story of Molly Tynes and all those things that came through Whitfield. Um, the the history of the war was available in the West compared with the big battles that we've all heard about in the East. But those were very, very important, and they were all related to the war that was going on in the East. Yes. Uh, just talking a little bit about the, the battle in the Cove you've mentioned, uh, lots of stories about that, but uh, the Union Army was forced back up the Cove. General John Hunt Morgan was the Confederate general. The battle closed late in the day, and his battle plan was to force a Union surrender the next day, but that night the Union Army settled after the battle had calmed down and camped around the Cove Church. From there, during the night, they were led out of the Cove and across the mountains in the back and into Pulaski County by a slave who had come from one of the houses up beyond the Cove Church. And so the battle was never actually completed, and Morgan and his his men did not come as far up the cove as the church itself. But uh, the next morning, the ladies there in the cove that came from those houses came back to the church, and there were found the seventeen wounded soldiers mm. in the in the church, and uh, they took care of them. They were eventually some were were eventually sent to uh, to Whistle and evacuated as prisoners of war. And uh, our stories tell us that there were seven that died there who were buried somewhere on the church grounds. Uh, the church was a mess after it. I've heard stories from my family about the cleanup and what the church looked like. But there are still 
one place there in the church where there's still some blood stains that we're told were left by the by the wounded Union soldiers that that were left in the the church in the cove. Well, see, that is so fascinating to me. So fascinating. I did an article many years ago on uh, the Fourth of July, based on uh, based on a, a summation of the Battle of the Cove that uh, Frank Emerson did, and yeah. uh, and it, and uh, that uh, those kind of stories are just amazing to me. It's a lot of the history that I'm afraid a lot of the people and around our community don't like just how much of that history and what did happen here. And as you were saying, those battles in this area were very important. Uh, of course, the, the main focus of the Union Army in coming to Wythe County was to cut the railroad. Exactly. The railroad was, was feeding Lee's army in, in the east, and, and that was the reason for it. And a lot of the... Lee's army did make. I think he he owed a great deal to Wythe County. Many of the supplies came from this area. Right, the lead that supported the entire Confederate effort came from lots of it. Came, came, from, came from right here in Wythe County. Yes, from, came from right here in Wythe County. And uh, very important to the Confederate effort. Anyway, coming back to um, the coming back to the Presbyterian Church. Um, the Presbyterian Church was, did a lot of wonderful things for the community, which I did not know, in that they eventually um, uh, purchased what would become Plumer College, what, it, what are Plumer Apartments today. They purchased uh, that for uh, Withfield and Wythe County. And, uh, of course, they were involved in the orphanage at Foster Falls, which was then relocated to the uh, Abingdon Presbyterian Children's Home, which still operates in Westville today. So a lot of, uh, and uh, not to mention East End Cemetery, a lot of things that Westville has and Wick County has, we can give thanks to those original Presbyterian members. And I think a lot of those early members were just like, other members of the community, they felt those were services the community needed mm -hmm. and were trying to, to support their, their brothers and sisters in the community. Right. And a few special people that I want to mention that I think are very pertinent to um, the history of the Whitfield Presbyterian Church. Um, we have two, there were two women uh, missionaries that's, that stuck out to me, uh, the the I don't know if were they the Fontaines were they sisters Lena and Jeanette Fontaine. I don't think they were, but they were both missionaries okay. and served served in the mission fields. Right, we have Jeanette Fontaine who was appointed medical missionary in the Belgian Congo, while Lena was a Bible school teacher in Korea. Both ladies are interred in Eastern in the East End Cemetery, which was established by the Presbyterian Church in 1863 and then turned over to the town in 1956. Um, Jeanette passed away in 1972 at the age of 86, 85, 86, somewhere around in there. And Lena uh, was... Oh, looks like 92 or 93. Uh, she passed away in 1981. 
and they're both buried in Easton Cemetery. But those ladies and, and their stories were uh, fascinating to me and their dedication, uh, as was the, uh, the Reverend Thomas, is it pronounced Sproul? Reverend Thomas Sproul. Thomas Sproul, yeah. Yes. He he was we had the same birthday. He was born on my birthday, March twenty fifth, nineteen twenty, in Rosemont, Pennsylvania. Came to I didn't know that. Came to the came to the Presbyterian Church in nineteen sixty two, and looks like he was the longest running minister there in all the histories that I could find. He he was there from nineteen sixty two to nineteen ninety, twenty eight years and was an active member until his passing in 2010. Uh, he, they proclaimed his birthday, March 25th, 2010, as Dr. Thomas Sproul Day by the town of Whitfield. He was inducted into the Witt County Sports Hall of Fame, the Witt County Civic Wall of Honor, and was given Minister of the Year, the Whitfield JC's Distinguished Service Award, the Chamber of Commerce Outstanding Citizen Award, among others. Uh, what can you say about uh, Dr. Sproul and uh, these Fontaine ladies? Well, I can, can talk to you about Dr. Sproul a long, long time. <laughs> okay. he's, the primary, he's the primary minister that I grew up and actually both as a young adult and an adult was under, uh, first served on the Board of Deacons under Dr. Sproul, known, known he and his family well. Uh, and sponsored youth fellowship with, while he was a minister here, had lots of good times with the Sproul family. The Fontaines were older, and I, I remember them both, uh, but did not know them as well because uh, of, the, of the age differences. I remember I was uh, as I was growing up in the church, they were some of those people that we were kind of, I think you'd call it an awe of, and knew some of the things that they'd done. There were a couple others of those like that. Uh, speaking of the, the mission fields, uh, Ben Kelly Jr. served as a missionary in the 50s in the Congo. And, and of course, I knew him better than the Fontaines, but he had many stories to tell about that. And in later years, Bill and Annette Washburn have been members of our church. Annette now is in a nursing home in Marion, I think. Bill has passed away a few years ago. But they spent many, many years in Africa. As, as missionaries, so, so the Presbyterian Church has a good legacy of, of people that have served the mission fields. Uh, the, <laughs> the longest running tenure of, of any uh, minister that you've had was, uh, in, in recent years anyway, was uh, Brad Simpson, who I came to know through my work here in the town for years. He was here from 2003 to 2019, and now you have Dr. John Langham, um, and he will preside over the services for the 200th celebration on October 8th. Um, also, on that celebration, you're going to have a slideshow presentation from Anne Fontaine Sluter. She, she's Martha's Fontaine's sister. She grew up in the church, too. She is a, but, okay. but she still comes back often. We're very proud of her. Right. And uh, Sunday, on um, Sunday, October the 8th at 11 a.m., you'll have a worship message from Reverend Clay, Reverend Clay McCallie, and he and music will be performed by the Children's Choir 
uh, Andrew Meeks doing bagpipes for you all, and a, a very legendary musician and local legend Edwin Lacey will perform on the banjo with Bob and Bill Lacey, and of course uh, we all know the Lacey family. Uh, Chuck's son Charles was my best friend in high school. Uh, I graduated with his daughter Emily. Uh, Jane is a wonderful human being. Uh, but what can you say about the Lacey uh, family uh, performers? Well, we're looking forward to it. Uh, those young people have all spread the different areas around, and I haven't seen them together. I think that's one of the things that's kind of exciting is to bring them all back together here in Whistle, and we're all looking forward to, to having a peer, and they're going to perform for us. I hope lots of people will be able to come and see them. Of course, that's this regular Sunday morning worship service that you're talking about. Uh, we have sent invitations out to lots of people who have uh, who grew up in the church and have connections here in Whistle, but have moved away and are, are not here at this time. But the Lacey's are among many of those that we hope will be back for this 200th anniversary celebration. Well, I certainly hope so. And it sounds like that it's going to be a great uh, program. I wish I was going to be in town. If I was, I would attend myself. But I'm very thankful to Linda for uh, assigning me the the project of covering it for the church. And uh, I'm delighted to have had you on my program, Sid. I have enjoyed talking with you. Good to hear from you and glad to be with you. I want to emphasize that people are invited certainly an open church service and we look forward to it we uh, also look oh thank you zach i appreciate what you do i always enjoy your column in the paper and it's always good to hear from you good yeah. to hear from you this time well thank you i have enjoyed that too and i appreciate it. thank you